Well, good evening, everybody. Um, it's good to be with you tonight in our third week now in our new space here at Heritage. Um, tonight, is, we are, this room is like really feels very left-leaning over here, so I'm going to like try to give visual contact really just specifically to Sean um, all night long. Let's see how that goes. Anyways, well, Sean, um, as you know, tonight is an in-between night in our teaching calendar for this year, which means it's one of those weeks that comes in between our main series of the year, and on these weeks, we come back to a topic that, that we will like stagger sermons about all through 2022, and the topic for this year in these in-between weeks is the parables of Jesus but the stories that Jesus told during his ministry when he uses something that's common to the people that he's talking to in order to reveal things to them about his ultimate message. Back in February, we started, uh, we started this work by exploring the parable of the sower. And tonight we're continuing this work by talking about a group of Jesus's parables altogether, a group which deals with something that can feel both abstract um, when we think about Jesus, but also something that is central to his message. And that is, we're going to be talking about the parables of the kingdom of God, the kingdom parables. Before we get to what Jesus says about this kingdom that he keeps talking about, we need to start by doing our best to understand how the concept of a kingdom itself is this powerful metaphor for people of Jesus's day. So we, we're going to start here with what did Jews in Palestine in the first century think about when they heard the word kingdom? Well, without a doubt, they would have thought first about the kingdom of Rome, right? But what was Rome to them, and why would Jesus want to associate God with that? In the first century, just as the, like, the brief history recap, right? In the first century, Rome had become the latest in a long line of foreign conquerors in Judea. After the Jewish people returned to the areas that were around Jerusalem from a period of exile in Babylon, which is this like central moment in their own story that happens in the 6th century, they get to come back to Jerusalem. They enjoy semi-independent rule for around 300 years, say semi-independent. But in about the year 300, or there are specifics here, but in the, in the early in the like, oh, I get early and late confused when we're going on the other side of the zero. Let's just say there's a point several hundred years before Rome when Alexander the Great um, conquers Judea and they fall under the thrall of the Greeks. And this lasts for several hundred years until the Maccabean revolts in the second century, in the middle of the second century, which give them another kind of period of self-rule for several decades, actually a little over a hundred years. But then in the early first century BCE, about 60 or 70 years before the birth of Christ, they are again conquered, and this time by Rome. And so in the time of Jesus, it's the Romans who hold sway. And so when Jesus says the word kingdom to a bunch of people, it's Rome, which is going to come immediately to mind. Their most recent rulers in a long line of foreign rulers who have stolen their wealth, who demand endless tribute of them, and who are expecting them, expect the Jewish people's gratitude for what the Romans call the Pax Romana, right, or the peace of Rome, which which is a peace that's established through the threat of overwhelming military force in order to maintain order in their tremendous empire. So the question then is, what is a kingdom to them? Well, it is an alien emperor who's an almost deity of sorts, 
and who demands from you worship and tribute. But we must also remember another thing, right? We also need to remember who Jesus is talking to when he's talking about an empire, when he's talking about a kingdom. He's not talking to Israel's elite, to those people who might be in some small ways politically powerful in this kingdom or influential in this kingdom. He's talking to the poor, right? He's talking to lowly workers and farmers whose connection to the costs of the kingdom are going to be ever-present in the predictable forms, right? In the form of high taxes, in the form of like harassment by Roman soldiers. But their connection to any of the benefits of that peace, any of the benefits of being connected to this huge kingdom, like that's all going to seem super, super remote and abstract from their daily lives. Which makes Jesus' description of God's plan for the world, a plan which Jesus says over and over again is going to be something that's good for everybody, his description of that as a kingdom a pretty interesting and unusual choice. What do these people care if God is their king rather than the emperor? Will God's soldiers still harass them? Will God's tax collectors still get rich off their backs? If God's kingdom really is going to be good news, how is it going to change the way that these sorts of things in kingdoms typically work out for regular people? To get a sense of this tension, which can be hard for us, we might think of the closest comparison in our own culture. And that's not super easy, but the closest comparison is probably two-party politics. Consider the last election, or the last two elections, the last three elections. We tend to vote in elections for the candidate whose rule, whose rule is going to look most like the way that we want things to look. But this is the key thing. We don't actually expect much when they win, do we? In terms of changes to how our lives actually work. So if we're not really expecting our lives to change all that much, then why do we get so into it? I think the answer is that we get into it because for us, this is the key thing, for us, the power, not com- like the power comes not through actual power. For us, the power comes through identification with power. That's our person up there, whoever wins. If nothing else, our person can stick it to our enemies on our behalf. And I think this reality of how we think about politics has become much more clear in the last few election cycles, hasn't it? Folks tend to vote for their champion, not for their actual interests. Not in the case, again, of Sean, right? Sean's running for office. Like, I don't mean that for you. I know you're going to do real things for the people you're... <laughs> That's true. So kingdom for us, kingdom for us, I think is still really about the Pax Romana. We assume we're going to live under somebody's rule, so they might as well be somebody who hates the same people that we hate. You incorporate yourself into a system so that you can identify with the emperor's power. And I want you to remember that because it's going to come back up later and it's kind of the key to the message tonight. Our temptation is to see kingdoms as something that we incorporate into so that we can identify with their power. We incorporate so that we can identify. So what then, what then is God's kingdom going to be like? 
Well, between the four Gospels, Jesus shares a total of 12 parables about it. I'm only covering six tonight, so we're good. He says this. He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. And night and day, while he's asleep or while he's awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crop on its own. First, a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. So God's kingdom is a mustard seed. His kingdom is yeast in 60 pounds of flour. His kingdom is a treasure in a field. His kingdom is a mysterious harvest. All of that sounds quite different, I think, than the kingdom of Rome, but different how exactly. And what could it mean? What does it still mean? To start with, we can say that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God using metaphors that his audience can understand. Right? Jesus' listeners know about mustard seeds, and they know about yeast, and they know about harvests. They can relate to this, like, what if I win the lottery fantasy of finding a treasure in an otherwise uninteresting field and then buying that field so that the treasure can be theirs. But what connects those four metaphors together, and what do they illuminate about this kingdom? I'd like to propose a few things. Right, that's what I'm up here for, right? I'm supposed to not just talk about this forever. I have to give you some, some answers. So here's what I'd like to propose. First this, that God's kingdom is local. God's kingdom is local. If Rome is this faraway power that's demanding worship and tribute, God's kingdom isn't coming here from somewhere that's out there. It is emerging here because this is where it was buried. The mustard seed is planted in the ground. The yeast is mixed in with the dough. The treasure is hidden. The harvest is sown. It's local to here. The second thing is this. The kingdom of God is actively nonviolent. Actively nonviolent. In all four of these parables, God's kingdom is doing transforming work. The mustard seed grows to great heights, right? The yeast leavens the dough the crops poke up from the ground, and even the treasure transforms the fortunes of the person who finds it, making them a rich man. However, that transforming work isn't something that happens at the tip of a sword, right? Rome rules because Rome conquers, and then it destroys threats to its power. Before Rome, the Hesiods did the same. Before the Hesiods, the Greeks. Before the Greeks, the Persians. 
and on and on and on and on. But underneath those conquering armies, underneath those conquering armies, something has been planted which will upend them in this new and active and also nonviolent way, which is to say that the systems of dominance are going to be undone. The systems of dominance are going to be undone. The third thing then, so we have a kingdom that's local, a kingdom that's actively nonviolent. Number three, God's kingdom is patient. God's kingdom is patient. The final thread in these four parables is that each one describes a slow and even an organic change. The seeds grow, the yeast leavens. The man who finds the treasure must work and save for the money that he'll need to buy it. What God is bringing about in this world will start here locally, not from somewhere outside coming in. What God's bringing about in this world will upend nonviolently, and what God is bringing about in the world will come eventually. Those are hallmarks. These are hallmarks of this very different kingdom that Jesus is trying to describe in all of these parables. But why this shift? Why still even call it a kingdom? It's weird that we're working on two levels of metaphor, right? Like he's calling God's rule a kingdom, and then he's describing that kingdom in all these sort of strange ways. Why call it a kingdom at all? And also, must God be patient? Must God be nonviolent? Why work in these ways? As most of you know, I've been taking seminary classes for the last three years as part of the condition for my hire here at Revolution as the lead pastor. I've got to go back to school. That's the rule if I'm going to stick around. And in the class that I'm in right now, which is on the subject of Christology, if you're interested, which is not a made-up word. That's real. That's a real subject. You can look it up. But in this class on Christology, we've been reading this book by a theologian named Walter Wink, which is a terrible name for a book, for an author, I should say. But anyways, this guy, Walter Wink, is a theologian. He's been writing this book about the powers of this world and how those powers hold sway. And in this book, he names something that I've long thought about, but I never knew how to describe or to discuss, and that something is the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence. I love that turn of phrase. And Wink argues that the absolute core belief of what is functionally the religion of empires, the religion of kingdoms, that's been going on in this world for the last 6,000 or so years, that its core religious belief is that the only way to get rid of a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That violence is the only language that the violent know how to speak. And that's the best any of us can ever hope for, is that somebody will use violence well, that they will use it for justice, or that they'll use it moderately, or that they'll use it righteously. And we hope that somebody will use it well and that they'll stay in charge for as long as possible before somebody that uses it badly shows up. And Wink says that this is a religious belief because it understands the world through this set of faith-based assumptions about the nature of things and how things are. Chiefly this, that the goal of life on this planet is control. Redemptive violence is this myth we use to justify this understanding. It's how we explain why it's important for us to have control. And it's also how we identify with 
or how we identify what we're afraid will happen. It's how we name the thing that we're afraid will happen if we lose control. If we lose control, something bad, somebody bad's going to show up and do something bad to us. But the kind of kingdom, the kind of kingdom that Jesus says that God, his Father, is at work seeding in the world, the kind of kingdom that he says God, his Father, is at work kneading into the dough of the world, the kind of work that God, his Father, is burying in this world so that those who have nothing are able to find it and then have everything is one that isn't centered on how to maintain power. Instead, it's centered on how his creation can benefit. Think about, think about these metaphors again, right? What's the point of leavening dough? Isn't the point of it to bake bread to eat? What's the point of harvesting a field? Isn't the point of harvesting a field to feed people who are hungry? What's the point, according to the parable of that growing mustard seed, right? Well, let's remind ourselves. Mark writes, yet when planted, that seed grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. God's kingdom is different because God's kingdom isn't for God's benefit. It's for ours. The powers and the kingdoms of this world want us to buy into a system where we incorporate with their authority so that we can identify with their victory. But that's not how God's kingdom is going to work. I said earlier that Jesus uses 12 parables in total to describe God's kingdom. And we've talked about four, and like I said, I'm not going to work through all the remaining eight of them, but I do want to share two more, which are a bit longer. And the first of them is found in Luke's gospel, and it goes like this. Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. Don't know if it's the same character, but could be, I suppose. He says, the first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out, which is a fun thing to imagine needing to do if you buy oxen. <laughs> like, that's fun. So he has to go. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. <laughs> These are all really funny reasons, actually. The servant came back and he reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And I like this. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The second, the second parable is in Matthew. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, You also go and work in my vineyard. I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. 
He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because nobody has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. When the workers received their wages, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have, been born, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What else are we learning about God's kingdom in these two parables? I think we're learning first that God's kingdom is a banquet. In the first parable, when the guests are invited, or what the guests are invited to is a feast in their honor. And when they choose not to come, their host refuses to let the food go to waste, right? So he sends his servants out to find anybody and everybody and even presses them to come in to the banquet, which means that the second thing is this, right? God's kingdom is for outsiders. His kingdom is for outsiders. Our new king, our good emperor, isn't trying to force our tribute to him. He's actively seeking those with whom he can share his wealth. And his eye is not on those who seem worthy of that wealth, but it's on those who seem hungry. And finally, we learn this. We learn, this is the hardest, but also the most important. We learn that God's kingdom is liberation. That God's kingdom is liberation. This is a tricky word, and it's a word with a complex history in Christian thought, if any of you like, who have also been to seminary are raising eyebrows, eyebrows right now. So let me clarify. I'm looking at you, Dante. So let me clarify what I mean. What I think Jesus fundamentally understands about the kingdom system that has held sway over all of our lives for so, so long is that we are slaves to it. No matter who is in charge, we are the ones over whom the people in charge rule. We are the ones whose wealth and work and worship they extract. What they offer in return for all of that, wealth and worship, what they offer in return is this sham, this pittance. They offer us a chance if we incorporate ourselves into their empire or into their nation or into their political party. They offer us a chance to identify with their power. But meanwhile, we're slaves to this vision of the world where power is the only real football that anybody's chasing. And power is always about control. So how can any new king actually free us from that system without just doing it all over again? And when I say liberation, this is what I mean. Who can free all human beings in such a way that we're not still trying to control one another? 
This might seem super abstract, so I want to ground it before we get to the answer. I want to ask this question. How big is your imagination for what a good life looks like? How big is your imagination for what a good life looks like? When I ask that question, what do you think about immediately? Is your imagination limited by thoughts of comfort, personal freedom, independence? Do you think of things like not having to work, being able to buy what you want, not having to deal with difficult people? That's probably on some of your lists. Choosing for yourself what you want to do and when you want to do it? If so, my question for you is this. What's everybody else doing in your fantasy? Are they even there? When we imagine freedom only in terms of what we are free to do, we're still playing a game of empires. We don't care who's down so long as we're up. Revolutionary freedom, real liberation, has to be something that's for everybody. So what do we see in that second parable? I think what we see is this king whose generosity overwhelms and upends our backbiting and our jealousy of each other. Whose generosity exposes, in fact, our selfishness. And the ways that we struggle to see our own value except through comparisons with the value of other people. But in this king's kingdom, we're not being compared with anybody else. And we all receive the full day's wages. This means that we can be truly liberated from the fear that there's not enough to go around, which is the bedrock lie that keeps us enslaved to systems of power and oppression and control. It's that fear that there's not enough. God's kingdom is local. God's kingdom is actively nonviolent. It's patient. It's a banquet. It is for outsiders. It is liberation. I said before to remember that trick or that trick of the systems of empires, which I've said a few times now, where we incorporate with power so that we can, I'm sorry, we incorporate, yeah, we incorporate with power so that we can identify with power, right? But today of all days, I want to bring that back up because today is actually not Palm Sunday, but it's Palm Sunday weekend, right? So we're going to think for a moment about Palm Sunday and what Palm Sunday means and what happens on that day. And I think we can identify that this weekend, of all weekends, let's pause and consider what it is that Jesus does. Jesus identifies with us so we can be incorporated into him. He identifies with us so that we can be incorporated into him. Jesus chooses to experience all the messiness of a human life, including mockery and abandonment and false accusation and even torture and death, so that he can wholly and fully and completely identify with his own creations. We have a God who fully and personally sees us, which we just talked about in communion, that thing that we love about communion, that I love about communion, where, you, where Claire says my name. My God knows me, has chosen to identify with me 
so that he can then bring us to true and to complete liberation from our smallness and our meanness to each other. And he can incorporate us into his perfection and into his story. The empire story shares itself, even gives itself for the subject story, for the slave story. That's what we're talking about at Easter. That's what we're talking about in the gospel. Not another kingdom for us to pay tribute to, but a God who chooses to identify fully with us and freely offers us the reward of incorporation. So if that's true, what do we do then? Well, that has to begin with believing, I think. We say that all the time. It's like part and parcel of like how we think about Christianity. We have to believe. But pause for a minute and realize like it's actually significant if what I'm saying is true. It has to be, begin with believing in this upside-down kingdom. The treasure is buried in the field. Are we willing to buy it? This has to be the first step, because if we don't first believe in the kind of kingdom that God's bringing into the world, then we're going to keep living in the old kingdom, where the best that we can ever hope for is getting more scraps from the table than the person next to us gets. We're going to be those people, in other words, who are invited to the feast, but who refuse to come. So belief in the existence of that kingdom has to be the first step. But then what? Okay, so you believe in God's upside-down kingdom. Well, what do the workers who came in at the end of the day and received a full day's wages go on to do? What do the travelers who invited into the feast do? Two things, I think, I'm guessing here, and I'm going to share them, and then we're going to close. The first is this. You tell other people he's hiring. Who wouldn't tell their friends and family about a generous, like about an offer like this, about a chance to work for someone so generous? And then second, you come back the next day. You come back. Once you've experienced revolutionary generosity, you want to keep experiencing it and then even keep sharing it yourself. So don't go back if you've been if you've had that experience of getting hired in the afternoon and getting a full day's wages like don't go back don't go back to doing things the way that you once did live in that generosity experience it over and over again and invite other people to experience it too don't go back to the systems of envy and jealousy and selfishness live in the abundance of a kingdom unlike any that you could have ever imagined live in this kingdom That's the challenge. Live in it. That's our hope. Believe in this kingdom and then make this kingdom your home. I'll pray for us and then we'll continue in worship. God, thank you for the kingdom that you've invited us into. And I'm going to keep this prayer super short and just say this. God, help us to believe it. Help us to believe in the kingdom that you are bringing about in this world that's under our feet now and growing. Help us to believe it. And then as we believe it, God, stir us to share it. We love you and we're grateful. We're grateful in your son's name. Amen.